1: so to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
2: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
3: A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place.
0: Justice will let me serve in this case. She's going to get away with it.
3: Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction
1: and Mental Health, CAMH. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada Land, and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures and it's very likely that we're gonna be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you gonna get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canadaland. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get This episode is brought to you by CJFE, Canadian journalists for free expression. I am a member of CJFE. You should become one too. They do a lot of wonderful things to protect your freedom of expression, and they also do things to help journalists in distress around the world. Go to cjfe.org and click become a member now. This episode is also brought to you by Squarespace, the easiest way to create a beautiful website, blog, or online store for you and your ideas. Squarespace features an elegant interface, beautiful templates, and incredible customer support. Start building your website today at squarespace.com and use the offer code CANADALAND. You'll get 10% off. (music) Anne Kingston of Maclean's Magazine.
2: Yes, Maclean's Magazine.
1: And author. And glad to have you back. I think today we're just going to talk about the Gemini market. Lots to say. This episode is brought to you by Ginny Greb, Maureen Gugu, Simon Nakanechny, Pete Rudkins, Alexander Ferguson, Milton, Pam Del Maestro, and Kevin May. Kevin, why did you decide to be
3: awesome? Because land has opened my eyes to uh, issues that I don't see in traditional media, and uh, it's really been beneficial, and I think it's important for everybody to support and make sure it sticks around for a long time. This episode is also
1: brought to you by Squarespace, and you've written a bunch of books, and you are a journalist. You don't have a personal website.
2: No, I am primitive in that regard. I think about it a lot, but this is something I need to do, Jesse.
1: I have excellent news for you. There is a very simple solution to people like you and I who don't know how to actually build websites. Squarespace has made it very simple. They have beautiful designs that really stylish designers have put together, and they have specific ones for a journalist, an author, an online store. Or a graphic designer, even anything you want, you can kind of just plug your own information in and you're good to go. They've taken all of the kind of under the hood work out of it. If you go and use their easy to use tools right now, there is no coding required, no technical web skills. You will get a free domain. If you sign up for a year, you can start your free trial today at squarespace.com. When you do decide to sign up, Make sure that you use the offer code CANADALAND. You will get 10% off of your first purchase. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. heroic work that they're doing every day. They treat everyone with dignity, and their research is seeking and finding real solutions for everyone around the world. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp, betterhelp.com slash Canada Land. That's betterhelp.com slash Canadaland.
3: Gian Gomeshi. Gian Gomeshi. Gian Gomeshi.
0: Found not guilty. Not guilty.
3: Cleared all charges. Today's acquittal. Acquitted of sexually assaulting three women. Three female complainants were unreliable witnesses. Inconsistencies in the complainant's testimony.
2: Errors
0: and
1: omissions. Shifting statements and surprise evidence.
3: Later sent him a picture of her in a bikini. String
0: bikini. Is his reputation ruined? Can he
3: ever salvage his career?
1: And uh, I haven't really said anything on the show since the verdict, since the ruling, since the media response. I know you've been working on this extensively, and you were covering this throughout the trial.
2: I was in the court throughout. So let's start with Marie hennen on The National last night. Did you catch that? I did catch that. <laughs> what did you make of it? One thing that strikes you off the bat is that the mythology that has been created around Marie hennen has it that she speaks in the court Law, Not in the court of public opinion. However, it was surprising to me. I thought, okay, what's the motive for being on the National after the verdict? But she also submitted to an interview for a profile in Toronto Life mm-hmm. last year. So I thought it was interesting. Obviously, she said the platitudes, justice was done, the system works. But I think she was also kind of, there were a few other coded things in the conversation. For instance, she talked about the resources the police and the Crown put toward this particular case as if it was a battering ram that she was dealing with. Really which, robust. Exactly. And the second thing was she talked about her own practice. And I think that she's been discussed broadly. And one of the takeaways from you know the coverage is that she's a high-end boutique lawyer who deals with high-profile cases. She talked about dealing with marginalized clients, and I thought that was an intentional aside. Mm-hmm. A marginalized client
1: like Sharon like Kameshi, I guess? Or is she referring to somebody else to rehabilitate her own?
2: Yes, I think that there was a sense that she covers the waterfront in terms of representation. So starting
1: at the beginning of what you just said, why is she doing this? I just got an email from Peter Mansbridge. I asked him, you know, did you go to her? Did she go to you? And he said, well, we've been trying to get an interview with her sure. for months. Right. I find it interesting that now is when she agreed to it. Do you? I do. And we'll get into that. But let's okay. let's first, before we speculate, this is why she said she was there.
0: I think the reason uh, I'm here, that I know the reason that I'm here, is that a number of people that I really value uh, who are justice actors thought that it was important as a person who spent 25 years of her life in this system to perhaps address some of the misconceptions. Because it's a system I believe in and I value very much and I think we should all be proud of. And so that part of the discussion has been uh, very distressing to me.
1: So. At the urging of other people in the legal community, she is not there. She said explicitly, I am not here to talk about this case. I can't talk about this case. And she is not there to defend herself. She said, I don't feel like I have to justify myself. She is there at the behest of her fellow officers of the
2: court to defend the justice system, which we should all be proud of. Do you buy that? Well, if she was there to do that, I think that she did that very generically. Or maybe it was a function of the questioning. I was looking at it as subtext as that there was something else going on. Do
1: you have an opinion on why she was there?
2: No, I mean, as I said, it seemed that the interview was conducted on the basis of response in the media and social media. I mean, it was a back and forth that didn't really involve the case itself. Mm -hmm. And I think she has to perhaps defend the fact that people are talking about this verdict as somehow being emblematic of larger problems in the system. And this is a system that she has been part of for 25 years. And... I don't know. I cannot speculate about why Marie Hennen was on the National. Then I will.
1: This started with me when we've already seen the articles speculating, oh, can he rehabilitate his public image? Mm-hmm. And is he working with PR people? What is the long road towards public rehabilitation? Will he ever work again? He, of course, did not make any comment after the acquittal. But his sister, Gila mm-hmm. Gameshi, did issue a statement where she spoke about the difficulties for the family. And Simon Hope to the Globe and Mail said something to the effect of, this is the first step of a considered plan. right? I agreed with that assessment. I thought that's what it was. I think that he is not in a position right now where we want to hear him.
2: And nor can he speak. He's still in the legal system. Yeah, right?
1: there's a trial coming up in June. So when I saw her there, I said, oh, this is part two. She's still his lawyer. She's not there to talk about this case. Fine. But she certainly wouldn't be doing any press if she thought it would hurt his case
2: or him in any way. No, and certainly she would tried to summon sympathy in terms of the effect any kind of legal proceeding has on the defendant how it's life changing as one would expect, That's again, right. platitudes. And,
1: and Mansbridge said, is there anyone involved in this case who didn't get hurt? And I kind of was waiting for her to say, yeah, me. This is something that I wanna to respond to. Here, here's her talking about uh, Twitter.
0: We have a very, very good system. So if it's topical, if it's something that we have as a society chosen to discuss, then that's a good thing. It doesn't mean we're in crisis. It means we are doing what we should always do as a community and a society, which is to look at ourselves and to say, is this right, can we do better? And in what areas can we do better? And then we proceed to do that. And that's why we're constantly evolving and we're constantly changing. That in my view is not a negative thing, provided it's done in a meaningful way. And in a way that at the end of the day, we are actually moving forward and not just getting a 140-character tweet out. Because nobody changed the world doing that.
1: So here she is sneering at Twitter. And there's a lot of um, kind of head-nodding, knowing acceptance of like, oh yeah, Twitter, or what, what can you really do with 140 characters? But really what she's attacking there is the public domain where people say things. I mean, what is 140 characters? They're letters. So no one ever changed the world with a publicly stated sentence. I think that people did. And I think it's odd that here she is in the public forum attacking a public forum.
2: I agree. I found that statement particularly blathery. The reason you're having such blowback on Twitter is that there's a perception of calcification within the courts and what people want is some sort of movement, some sort of sinking of new thinking about what sexual assault is, power dynamics, all of that reflected within the way courts handle these cases.
1: What didn't get said there, and Mansbridge sort of glazed over it where he said, well, aren't these cases special? Aren't sexual assault cases different? He didn't follow up. The implication there is like, are they special because they're more delicate or we have to be more careful with these types of victims? And the answer is no, we don't. I mean, there's all kinds of serious crimes and we, and, and we have to be careful with all victims. The thing that didn't get said there, as she's defending, I'm proud of the system. The system worked. We know that the overwhelming majority of sexual assault cases don't even enter the system. Exactly. And even by people who have undying respect for the system itself, well, the system, according to the Canadian Department of Justice, 78% of sexual assaults Mm -hmm. are not even reported. There's other statistics that say it's upwards of 95%. So if you've got a system where 78% of people who are victimized by a crime don't even go to the system, that system cannot be working.
2: Precisely. And there would be a hue and cry if there was any other sort of crime for which this was the statistical reality. Were it murder? Were it even car theft? I think that you would have a totally different conversation happening.
1: Isn't it unimaginable that if there were 78% of violent assaults were unreported to police, that we'd be saying, well, the system works. We're proud no, of the system. No, we would
2: absolutely not. So that's the argument. And I don't think that that discussion was had on the program. And there should have been follow-up questions. I would have liked to have seen Peter Mansbridge approach her with a Marie Hennan, thrust and Perry.
1: We seem to be willing to talk about anything ad nauseum, the memory of the witnesses, whether they were willfully misleading the court or whether they were involved in self-deception. We're going to talk about her shoes. We're going to talk about anything except for the fact that A, in a larger context, The vast majority of these cases don't even go reported. And in this context, most reasonable people still believe that this guy punches and chokes women.
2: This case became a cultural litmus test, so it did spark conversations about a bunch of other things. But in terms of the verdict and the reaction to it outside the courts, it's possible to think two things at the same time. And that would be that the judge's ruling was supported by evidence that occurred within the court, and at the same time, Gomeshi did it.
1: And that's fine. And I accepted that from the outset. The verdict didn't surprise me in the least, nor do I necessarily think in a system where you've got to prove a crime beyond a reasonable doubt that it was the wrong verdict. I don't think it was the wrong Mm -hmm. verdict. I can understand
2: that reasonable doubt existed. But the ruling shocked the hell out of me. The ruling is a fascinating piece of text. It was brutal, it was plain-spoken, it was obviously written for the audience beyond the courtroom, and there was a lot that was packed into that verdict that I think is very telling of the system.
1: That's what punched for me, was the ruling itself, and that's what the international press took a special interest in. That was the headline Outside of Canada. Inside Canada, we were still focused on the witnesses and their credibility. So the Star went out, and these are news stories, Jean Gameschi acquitted on basis of inconsistencies and deception. Globe and Mail went out with, Gameschi acquittal hinged on witnesses' lack of credibility. So we're hearing the witnesses, the witnesses, the witnesses. If you look at the U.S. press, the Washington Post let out with, Jean Gomeschi's verdict might not have been surprising, but the judge's words were. It's interesting because when we contrasted the headlines, we got a lot of blowback from reporters saying, all that nuance is in my story. And I'm drawing a distinction here between, I think it was, and I think people did a fine job in Canada within the article, but we sometimes- Headlines
2: speak- are problematic. Writers do not write headlines, as you know. Yeah, and but it's-
1: they're problematic, but they do tell you about the editorial disposition.
2: They so- absolutely do. And I think it's bad journalism to the extent that that kind of headline buys into the judge's narrative. That's not what a story should be doing. The story should be contextualizing more broadly. And
1: I find that the Canadian press will always, once the court weighs in, on something. They're just like, well, this is what the court said. We step back because mm-hmm. we're just the press. The American press is much more willing to say, well, no, what's important about this? So Slate says that it was a shocking proclamation from the judge. Salon, which is a very left-leaning publication, says that this is victim blaming alive and well in sexual assault cases. But then the BBC says that the Giangamichi Trail rattles sexual assault survivors. There's a lot of different voices, but some of these are you know rather mainstream voices in the American press that zeroed in on the ruling and were rather alarmed by some of the assertions that Horkins makes in the ruling.
2: Yeah, and I think that's absolutely fair. I think the ruling should be dissected sentence by sentence because I believe every word was chosen carefully. I found a lot of things really interesting about the choice of words and even the facts that were put forward. For instance, going back to the firing from the CBC back in October 2014, he was setting the context at the beginning of his ruling and he referred to the firing as being based on disreputable conduct that's the term he used disreputable gobeshi's disreputable conduct with a, with a series of women the facts of that matter are that it was criminal violent contact, allegedly, Mm -hmm. that saw the firing. I thought the word disreputable absolutely minimized what was happening at the time. Well,
1: let's not put too fine a point on it. He showed CBC executives a photograph of a woman's bruised body. But I'm getting ahead of myself because we're talking about the ruling itself. And I'm not going to make any, like I, I don't have any expertise to talk about the legalities of it, but I did find it... It did intersect with the area that I do look at, the press, and it did have stuff that just didn't make sense to me when he's talking about – there's no such thing as like right or wrong behavior. He says something to the effect of that human behavior varies, but their their behavior was
2: odd. Yes, he sort of created this caveat and then he said, on the other hand, this was odd behavior. There are two things that struck me. He talked about all of the relationships ending badly and I remember sitting in court and saying – that does not jibe with what actually was said in court. And, you know, the first witness said she was thrown at like trash by Gomeshi. That was what she testified. That's a bad ending. and You know, no question. Yeah. But the other two, actually, what was presented in court was that they continued to have contact post-alleged assault with Gomeshi. So it sort of struck me that the bad ending would only have kind of contextual truth if the judge believed that there was some jilted, frustrated girlfriend trope.
1: He also says that he is against the dangerous belief that all sexual assault victims tell the truth. Now, I don't believe that anyone presented evidence or an argument that suggested within
2: that court that all sexual assault victims tell the truth. No, they did not. He was ruling on a hashtag. Well, and also on behavior that was occurring outside his very courtroom as he was reading the verdict. I mean, yeah. there was a big mobilized protest about, I believe the survivors, I believe the victims. He was speaking directly to that.
1: So his ruling was not simply a ruling on the evidence in his courtroom. No. It was a ruling on this larger societal conversation we're having about whether we believe women who come forward or not. You're saying, well, no, we can't just have a default of belief. But what does that have to do with the case that was in his court?
2: What struck me is early on in the trial, a media lawyer came forward wanting a photograph of the first witness in in a bathing suit released Mm -hmm. to the media. And he ruled no because he was obviously clearly aware of the broader influence that the trial had and he said it would create a chill and sexual assault complainants coming forward. So he clearly was cognizant of the wider impact of his ruling. Yet when he talked about that very thing about this sort of concern about or we can't believe the women, it struck me as a weird note to inject. Again, he's making a larger point. Obviously, if we believed everyone who came forward with sexual assault, we would not need sexual assault trials. But the bigger issue is the low rates. He's talking about the fringe issue here. He's not addressing the larger problems within the system. Yes. Yeah purposefully.
1: Okay, so what is fringe and what is the larger issue? Because I feel like that's almost like the fault line that this whole debate is uh, resting on at this point. We have a lot of people who are very angry and upset about the idea of false accusation about witch hunts and that men's lives can be absolutely destroyed based on false allegation and, and, and that in fact a dangerous idea is entering the consciousness that we should basically eliminate the presumption of innocence. And then you've got other people who are saying, is that the problem or is the problem that that we have men going around punching, hitting and raping women and not even telling the police about it? And it's not like I feel like they're mutually exclusive. False allegation does happen. It does,
2: but it is not a norm. I think we should be focusing on what the norms are. So
1: as with any crime, there is some percentage of false allegation. And I think that it's not any higher in sexual assault by any metric. It's it's somewhere between 2 and 4%. And even those, you should listen to a recent episode of This American Life about how some people can actually be compelled to say they made things up that actually happened. Mm -hmm. But let's say that it's between 2 and 4%. That is a problem. We have a bigger problem.
2: Exactly. And I mean, one does not preclude the other. So it's sort of as if these extreme positions have come to dominate and we're not working our way through what really affects victims of assault and how the courts can respond more realistically to kind of changing mores also sexually and socially.
1: Where I respond to so much of this is the sneering dismissal of the press and trial by press, even in the ruling, he buys into the argument that because Lucy did so many interviews, that this was counted against her.
2: That's behavior outside of the court. Yeah. And it's extraordinary. You don't, in most sexual assault cases, have the press clamoring to talk to complainants.
1: Horkin's acceptance that Lucy doing publicity somehow compromises her as a witness is something that I think is very dangerous when we're talking about other women who are thinking of coming forward.
2: He did a bit of psychoanalysis within his verdict. He suggested that her coming forward as, quote, a heroine of sexual assault victims somehow influenced the way she testified in court. And then he went on quickly to say, you know, I have no reason to make this statement, but I'm going to make it anyway. As an there
1: it was an editorial. It was totally.
2: Of There's other little coded things in the verdict. For instance, he did not like certain frivolity in his court. He did not like the fact that Lucie de Guterres talked about the court as theater. There was a sense of not taking the judicial process as seriously as it should be taken. He referred to crude vernacular the crude vernacular being in reference to exchanges, you know, text and Facebook exchanges between two complainants in the case.
1: Yeah. And uh, uh, there's been some analysis after the fact that, you know, he likes serious witnesses. And, and if you've met Lucy.
2: The role she was playing in court did not fit the script that he wanted her to be. Which is a judgment reading.
1: about like the personal sphere and how, how a person should be, how a victim should be. Precisely. So there's sort of like a catch-22, damned if you do, damned if you don't here, in two different ways with this ruling. One of which is that Henan says, this isn't about how they acted. It's about that they lied about how they acted, she says. Right. Right? And Horkin says, yeah, I have a real problem with how they misled the court and there was deception. But he also says they acted oddly and they didn't act the way you're supposed to act when you're a victim. So it's sort of like, what if they had come forward and been absolutely honest uh, and remembered everything perfectly? Then we would have fallen to, well, okay, but is the way you acted consistent with the way you're supposed to act. Even within the cases that go to the courts, most of them don't result in conviction. You know, if the left hand hadn't gotten them, maybe the right hand would have.
2: We'll never know, we'll never of know. course. But I think one thing that's interesting is that in the closing arguments for both the Crown and Marie Hannon, they sort of tried to say that we know certain things to be true in sexual assault cases. One, that people delay coming forward. Two, that sexual assault victims often continue to have relationships with the Defendant, so this should not be held against them in court. I think the court does understand those things. How they are actually put into practice is another thing that we obviously this case is not going to show us.
1: The other catch twenty two is all of this negative treatment because of all of the interviews, which a strategically hurt them because it could be used and picked apart the way Henan did, and also the judge frowned upon her giving all these interviews, and, and the publicity seemed there was to hurt.
2: There's something unseemly about it. There's something
1: unseemly about it.
2: But let's remember.
1: That this would never have happened if it hadn't been for a press discussion, a press expose. All of this followed the media coverage, and Henan says that she felt compelled to stand up for this wonderful justice system. I am going to stand up for the media, the Twitter sphere, the public domain. If you want to actually look at what is at the disposal of a victim, where can you go? You can go to the press or you can go to the courts. Which system has yielded, like a greater understanding of what happened? I mean, there are parts of the truth that we weren't even allowed into the courtroom process. We know a lot more about what people say Gomeshi did and what Gomeshi himself says he did through his Facebook post, all reporting in the Star, women coming forward on their own, like Reva Seth, and writing in her own words. Right. And let's remember, Reva Seth, because she made a very conscious decision, I'm going to have a voice. I'm going to say that this guy assaulted me. I am not going to the police has spared herself all of the scrutiny and public humiliation that Lucy has had to endure.
2: Well, I think Reviseth's example is a really interesting one. Keep in mind that this is a trained lawyer also speaking. And I think she, in her piece in Huffington Post, talked about how we replaced rape with sexual assault decades ago Mm -hmm. in the criminal code. But there's still this idea that non-consensual penetration is the threshold for what constitutes sexual violence. Raviseth herself in her piece said, I hadn't been raped. And she also didn't want to deal with the system. And this goes to your point earlier about the fact that people came forward to the media because they felt they would be heard, which is what the courts should be doing as well. But also that the perception, you know, which is realistic, is that going through the system, is it going to be a hostile process? It was easier to come to the press than it would be to go through the courts. Yeah,
1: and it was, and that had, I I think, a much better outcome for the people who chose that path.
2: Yet, in an interview with someone, as you know, you do not have to tell the complete story you know if you're having a conversation as the various complainants who talked to the media early on stuff used against them later they created a narrative that I think they felt they had to carry into court or that was used against them in court so there's nothing wrong with sort of omitting details that are embarrassing to them or that they'd rather not discuss in an interview nothing wrong with it at all but there's a different standard when you take that same conversation and dissect it in a court of law
1: I was watching this all, and of the women involved in this trial, the only one that I had, had any contact with was Lucy, It was a source in, in the second story we did. And of the 24 women, I, I believe seven is the number who I have interviewed and I have had contact with, and in the case of one woman I have a friendship with. And I think that all of this getting kind of put onto the three women in this one trial, and then it'll come up again if they go ahead and do the second trial, to the exclusion of all these other allegations. You know, like they, they don't exist because they didn't find their way into a courtroom— And this conception that these women really lost. I want to talk about that just for a second. I don't claim to speak for any of these people. Some of them though came forward anonymously and I I, I did have conversations with them about what they hoped to get out of this. There wasn't one motive. People had different levels of anger and shame. Some women did want to see consequences for him. Some just wanted closure on what had happened to them. Everyone did say one thing about why they were talking with me. And this was common throughout the seven people I spoke with. What they said was that what they wanted to accomplish was to stop this from happening to somebody else, not in a grand societal way, about like sexual assault, but to stop other women from being hurt directly by Jean Meshi. They told me that they didn't know any of this negative stuff about him, that they bought the progressive warm, soft, friendly, friend woman image that he projected on the CBC. And that if they accomplished nothing else, they wanted to accomplish like that other women should know that that's not all there is to this guy. If that's their intention, and Lucy says, I think in subsequent interviews, she said, yeah, I would have liked a conviction, but I wasn't expecting one. Did she make a horrible mistake in giving all those interviews? Not if her intention was just that, to tell the world the truth about this guy as she understood it. There's no one out there who's going to meet this guy and not know this side of him, that these allegations exist. So they won in that respect. They achieved their goal. And in the case of Lucy, she achieved that goal, I think, at great personal cost.
2: Yeah, I think, and certainly, I mean, going back, the velocity of voices gave credibility to them. I mean, this does create interesting moral questions, though, in terms of the disconnect between the court of public opinion and the judiciary, in that... You know, some people could argue and put forward and would, you know, there is a concern of revenge and wrongful accusations being able to flourish if they're not tested.
1: These things aren't mutually exclusive. If somebody hurts you, you know, it's not like there's just like these pure like, yes, I'm just trying to change the discourse on sexual assault and I'm just trying to warn other people. I have no, we phrase these things differently. Revenge is one thing. Uh, we talk about justice, you know, like, well, should, should, shouldn't there be consequences? Double-edged somebody, sword, You yes. know, like, there should be consequences if you do things like this. And if you're the wrong party, you want to see consequences. Are you seeking revenge? I don't know. It's like, this is a phrasing thing, you know? No, it,
2: well, it's phrasing, but it just opens up a wider discussion. I mean, I think going back to your point... I think that mission was therefore accomplished in spades if that was the only motive in terms of a wider perception of what was going on here. But my understanding, I talk to a lot of lawyers who deal deal with sexual assault, and they talk about something else, and that is being heard and also being believed, Mm -hmm. you know? And those are different kind of thresholds. And I think that things will not change unless we sort of recalibrate in terms of how we listen to these stories being told.
1: Yeah. I don't purport to deliver justice. Your media is about truth, you know, and,
2: and it should not be about delivering justice. No. And, and you can horrifying. get into a lot of trouble,
1: and that's yeah. not the job. And I, don't, I take no responsibility for outcomes. You know, the job is to just tell the truth. There's a, a process there where both sides are asked for comment that didn't even happen in the courtroom. I think that having a public forum be where we decide is only useful. When the system is failing as disastrously as it has been, as it always has, which in the case of well, it fills a vacuum. It fills a need, for sure. That's it. This is a recourse for people that I think has worked better so far. And that's not necessarily a huge hurrah for the media as much as it is, I think, an indictment of the legal system. Thank you, Anne. My pleasure. That's your Canada Land Shortcuts. Thank you for listening. You can email me always. I'm at jesse at canadalandshow.com. I read them all and I respond when I can. We are on Twitter at Canada Land. And where can people find you?
2: Not on a website, but maybe soon they will. I'm at McLean's Magazine and on Twitter.
1: Our website is canadalandshow.com, where you can subscribe to The Imposter and buy tickets to that show's live launch on April 20th. Our crowdfunding site is at patreon.com slash Canada Land. I'm off for a week. Sachi Cole will be filling in. You can hear her on Canada Land on Monday and Canada Land Commons will be up on Tuesday and then Sachi will be back on this show shortcuts on Thursday. If you like what we do, please support us. for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com
3: join. And thank you. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place.
0: Justice will not be served in this case. She's going to get away with it.
3: Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.